You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis, and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Olivia Crimmel. Hello. And Xander Wilson. Hey, Damo. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, I'll be talking to 55.5's director Estelle Gohul about why local is wildly important for brands. Only four in ten feel connected to their community. That means there's a whole heap of people who feel like local is wildly important, but at the same time they don't feel like they're hooked into it. How consumers have changed since the beginning of the global pandemic. Everything's changed on an everyday basis and people have really stepped back and gone, all right, for me personally, what is the good life? And the big shifts and where society will settle. You know, that's why we're sort of looking at a macro level across Australia and we're comparing different categories and industries and businesses because those kind of big shifts and where it all settles is really unknowable at this point. But first, the week's topics. All the winners and losers from the latest GFK radio ratings. IPG sells creative agency 303 Mullen Low to New Zealand company Ativo. And Brent Hill departs the South Australian Tourism Commission for the South Pacific. GFK released its third Metro Radio ratings of 2021 this week, and there was plenty to dig into across the five capital cities, with some shows hitting record highs and others falling to unheard of lows. Let's get straight into the results. Xander, let's start in the city we're recording in some pretty interesting results in Sydney, not least nine radios 2GB. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think as we kind of previewed last ratings around um, uh, Ben Fordham and 2GB continue to fall this survey. Um, hard to say whether that was expected by Nine Radio, but but for Ben Fordham to be rating 13.5% in breakfast, um, you know, is definitely not where they want to be. And then on the other side of the coin, we saw Carl and Jackie O on Kiss climbing to their highest ever share in their history together on on Breakfast. That includes their time together on Two Day FM and on Kiss. They're now on twelve point nine percent. So just those point six of a points uh, separating the two. Now some some may say it's not a relevant comparison because their audiences are so different. The demos are quite different, but but the fact that it's a record share high is significant. Um, and as we know, uh, for for two GB, Ben Fordham replaced Alan Jones last year, and he'd held the number one Sydney breakfast show from two thousand and one until he retired last year. Hard to say exactly why this has happened. There's a few factors for me at play here. Obviously, the departure of, of, of Jones was always going to have an impact, especially for those rusted on listeners that we always hear programmers talk about. Um, the same people that followed him from 2UE mornings prior to him changing over to, to 2GB to, to breakfast on 2GB in the early 2000s. And although Ben Fordham did get off to a good start last year, plenty of programmers, especially on the FM side, have, have told me in recent in recent months that COVID was inflating the numbers for news talk in, in 2020 especially um, in Sydney and that they've been proved right here. We've seen ABC drop share this survey as well. It also worth mentioning that 2GB is under threat of losing its number one overall position in Sydney, uh, falling to 11.5% this survey and Nova Entertainment Smooth FN jumped up to 10.8% as well. It's a bit of a three horse race for who could come out on top next ratings at the moment, isn't it? 
there's a few different perspectives to, to come in here. So, so as we normally do, we chatted with programmers after the ratings yesterday. Um, I spoke to Paul Jackson from Nova, who said he believes Smooth can can make it to number one in Sydney overall this year. On the other side, um, uh, our colleague Emma Shepherd spoke with ARN's content chief, Duncan Campbell. He's obviously stoked about Carl and Jackie O's result, but but he told us he thinks Ben Fordham will bounce back next survey. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see see what happens there. Another reporter on the Mumbrella team, Cal Jaspin, uh, he spoke with Nine Radio's Greg Burns um, and, and they just kept, you know, spruiking from the hymn sheet. The fact is Ben's still number one. As long as he's number one, they're happy. Uh, so you can read into that what you like there. Uh, but, yeah, look, look, next survey, if Ben loses that number one position, it'll be, it'll be historic, truly. I'm going to put you on the spot here quickly in terms of that audience that's uh, departed uh, 2GB and Ben Fordham. We talked about uh, Sydney having a, a challenging uh, talk radio uh, ratings this time around. Where's the audience gone? It's a really good question. Last year we saw uh, Wendy Harm and Robbie Buck pick up share on the ABC. At the start of this year, uh, and even last survey, as as Ben Fordham and 2GB lost a little bit of share, they stayed pretty strong. So there was an argument to be made that maybe the audience was going to the ABC. In this book, there hasn't really been share pick up anywhere else where you'd expect it to pick up. When you see one station lose share and another station gain share, the logical thing to look at is to go, okay, well, maybe it's moving there. But but the other possibility is that is that maybe it's moving away from radio. Um, you know, we've seen. Uh, the, the radio networks invest heavily in digital content and digital audio over the past 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. Um, so it is possible that, you know, the audience could be going places like Steve Price's new national podcast show, which is on, on Listener, places like that. So, so again, again, as I say, and as Nine Radio keeps saying, it, it's probably not a trend with Ben Fordham yet. At the end of last year, he was still rating really, really well. Uh, so... You know, surveys four, five, and six will tell us. And and if, if he continues to lose share, then it's definitely a trend. If he loses number one spot, as I say, it's historic and and something the Sydney radio market hasn't seen since the early two thousands. Is it too harsh to say that where the audience definitely hasn't gone is Today FM breakfast? I don't think so. Today FM has had a rough start to the year. The, the, the first survey, their new breakfast show, Husey Ed and Aaron, did pick up a little bit of share. Uh, but it's it's dropped back by this survey now that they're rating 3.3%. Um, Today is rating 3.5%. For context, ABC News Radio has a 3% share. I'm sure that um, Dave Cameron and the team at SCA don't really want to be rating around where ABC News Radio is, with all respect to ABC News Radio. Um, you know, they, they would have been hoping that that show would have picked up results faster. But as we've seen with SCA two-day FM breakfast shows over the over the last few years, it, nothing really seems to change, change it. And speaking with Dave Cameron, he said, there's nothing they can do now other than not chop and change it because they've tried everything there. They've tried high-profile celebrities. They've tried reality TV people. They've tried experienced radio hosts. And then they blew up the show a few years ago um, and sort of replicated something along the lines of Smooth FM's breakfast show, which is a music-based breakfast show with Jamie Angel in there. So I think it's safe to say that Dave Cameron isn't going to make any changes there anytime soon. He's going to try and stay the course. It'll be hard to know whether that will do anything. It's 
as Tim Burrows keeps saying, whenever we whenever we break this down, what are they going to do next? They've run out of options, really. So all they can do is wait and hope that it changes. And though, as I did speak to Dave, he said the commercial appeal, appeal of that show is there. Um, it's bringing in the ad revenue. So at least it's ticking that box. But until they bring share back, it's, it's really difficult to say what's going to happen there. We've spent a while talking about Sydney because, of course, there's a lot happening in Sydney, but there's a bit happening around uh, the other major cities as well. Can you give us a bit of a wraparound of what else is going on? Yeah, definitely. So in Melbourne, Nine Radio definitely not experiencing those difficulties that they're experiencing in Sydney. Um, 3AW did lose a bit of share. Uh, Ross and Russell lost a little bit of share too, but they're still absolutely dominating that market. Huge gap there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. They're sort of double the next, almost double the next best breakfast show down there. So, but but you know, as I did point out earlier, and as as the chatter has been, uh, Melbourne is a market that has had longer lockdowns than most. It's currently in lockdown as we speak. Uh, so that appetite for news radio may not have dissipated there just yet. You know, it, it will be, it will take a lot to knock those guys off. Though, you know, the same was said when Alan Jones was on Sydney, it would have taken a lot to knock him off. So, um, but what Nine Radio has done well there is it's transitioned John Burns out, brought in Russell Howcroft, and they really haven't lost much there at all. Russell's come in and really hit the ground running. Looking across the rest of Melbourne, Christian O'Connell is sharing the top FM breakfast show with Chrissy Sam and Brownie on Nova. Uh, up in Brisbane, Nova regained its lead. And, and over in Perth, just to wrap up, Nova's strategy of changing absolutely nothing this year seems to be paying off. Uh, it's just cemented its market-leading position with gains for Nathan, Nat and Sean on breakfast and overall, while all the other FM breakfast shows did, you know, the uh, the lineup musical chairs at the start of the year. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're really nailing it over there in, in Perth. Massive ratings. Looking forward to ratings four coming up. But coming up next on the Mumbrella cast, New Zealand-based holding company Ativo buys a majority stake in 303 Mullen Low. Interpublic Group has sold a majority of its stake in Australian creative agency 303 Mullen Low and a minority of its stake in system media agency Media Hub. The purchaser is fast-growing New Zealand-based holding company Ativo, which is led by Cam Murchison, a former Ogilvy and DDB executive. Olivia, what does this deal mean? Well, Damien, uh, exact details of the deal are still under wraps, but what we do know so far is that IPG has sold a majority of its stake in its Sydney and Perth creative outfit 303, Mullen Low, and a minority stake in sister media agency Media Hub. What the exact ratio is and how much they are still uh, owning is still yet to be determined and we also don't know how much they're, they're going to receive from Ativo. Uh, it is an interesting move by IPG. It could be the continuation of a trend to franchise or it could be a retreat from the market or it could be recognition that incentivised local entrepreneurs deliver the best results. Yeah, you mentioned that trend. We'll go on to that a bit later on because that's really interesting in terms of what uh, some uh, what IPG is doing with some of its brands. And now we've seen this again. But let's focus on uh, TiVo first. It's not a name that many would be aware of in the Australian market. It drew a few blanks when we talked about it within the team. But what can you tell us about uh, this holding company that's based in New Zealand? Yes, not a lot, actually. <laughs> uh, it's, okay, next it's founded, <laughs> it's founded by former DDB, NZ and Ogilvy exec Cam, uh, who launched it in 2020. 
Uh, although there's not a lot of information around how we went about that, or more importantly, where the capital for these agency acquisitions is coming from. Ativo currently has three NZ agency brands within the group, uh, Harvey Cameron, a fully integrated marketing and communications agency, Farimond, which is a full service agency specialising in consumer and shopper behaviour, and also Gorilla, a TV and video production agency. Obviously, its stake in 303 and Media Hub marks its foray into the Australian marketing industry. So it could be that, as in New Zealand, where it's also recently added PR to its um, stable, they may look to do the same here and replicate both PR and also the production elements here. Yeah, it's a really interesting move, particularly now that it's got a a footprint in the Australian uh, market. And it seems very much uh, almost akin to what Ben Lilly is doing with Hero. Now, of course, that's relevant because IPG uh, sold McCann Australia to Ben and he's put that under the Hero network, but of course maintains very close ties uh, with McCann World Group. And we also saw that as well with uh, Rich Curtis when, uh, as the CEO of Future Brand uh, Australia, he purchased the agency here and again maintains very close ties to the global future brand uh, agency. The biggest question in that at the moment would probably be what happens to Nick Cleaver, of course, uh, uh, integral in the 303 days in Perth uh, and has followed that agency as it uh, was integrated into uh, IPG as 303 Low and then 303 Mullen Low and spread into Sydney. And now, of course, he's in Sydney as well. But is there any news on his continued participation in the business? Not exactly. The uh, The details that we got at the announcement of the deal didn't really specify, but that said that there are ongoing conversations with regards to Nick's future. If you look at, you know, for example, Ben's previous experience with McCann and then coming back and buying it, um, you could say that Nick's future is anything but straightforward in terms of what happens next. I guess the big challenge will be the stability under the new management and ownership uh, and how Nick plays into that. The other thing to note is that um, both he and Cam have DDB backgrounds. So they have that in common. Perhaps there are some, you know, synergies there. Uh, It's also worth noting that Ativo has in the last um, 12 months added new management for two of the agencies, for Harvey Cameron and also Farimond. So it would appear that Cam, who was previously also MD of Harvey Cameron in addition to CEO of Ativo, is looking to free up his time to focus on other initiatives or perhaps the management of 303 going forward. Coming up next, changes at the South Australian Tourism Commission. The South Australian Tourism Commission, or SATC, has appointed Eric DeRuz as Executive Director of Marketing following Brent Hill's resignation. Hill joined the SATC in November 2015 and is departing for a new role in the Pacific, which he's yet to specify. It's been an eventful tenure for Hill at SATC. Damien, can you give us some background on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a very interesting tenure for Hill, uh, one of the, the characters of tourism and travel marketing in Australia. As you mentioned, he's been at SATC since November 2015. And, and essentially in that period, we've seen a wholesale change of the agencies that SATC has has worked with across PR, media and uh, creative. So 
just to recap, during Hill's time there, we, we've seen the media shift to Caro, we've seen PR shift to Red Havas, and, and the most uh, controversial, of course, was the creative shifting from KWP, which was based in Adelaide and had been working with SATC for 20 years at that stage, uh, that shifted to TBWA, which opened up an Adelaide office uh, as a result of that. But there was a, a huge uh, furor uh, when that shift uh, was announced uh, and, and there was a, a lot of anger in the, uh, the community in South Australia about not using a South Australian-based uh, agency um, and, and the quote there actually from the advertising, uh, Adelaide Advertising Design Club uh, was essentially labelling SATC a, a disgrace. Uh, they said in one of my news stories, uh, Adelaide has uh, now become the laughing stock of the Australian advertising community and there was a bit of a campaign to try and get that uh, re- reversed. Uh, the 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 deal was uh, it was a four point nine five million dollar account uh, as well, but I guess important to note during all of that that Brent stuck to his guns, uh, kept going with uh, with the changes, and uh, has managed to make South Australia one of the most talked about states in tourism in our country. Yeah, that's quite impressive. I understand looking back that there were some pretty interesting campaigns he initiated in order to do that. Can you run us through some of those? Yeah, absolutely. He's never been shy of a, an interesting, I'll call them an interesting idea, crazy idea, controversial idea. Uh, look, you got to give him credit. The, the One of the major ones he did, hashtag book them out, which was a super quick response to the bushfire crisis at the end of 2019 into 2020. Uh, of course, South Australia was uh, largely affected by that, especially on Kangaroo Island. Uh, and he was very quick uh, with his team and, and with the agency partners to go into market with, with this hashtag book them out campaign, uh, which he, he was lauded for. Uh, Probably the most controversial one was, uh, if uh, the industry remembers, the Old Mate campaign, which uh, ended up being a three-part series. Uh, But the initial one was uh, an old gentleman being very sad that he had discovered Adelaide quite late in his life. Uh, And I think we've got a clip, uh, an audio clip from that uh, creative that we're going to play for you now. Don't feel sorry for old mate. It's his own damn fault he didn't visit Adelaide sooner. So that didn't go down uh, very well. There was huge amounts of backlash to it. But instead of stopping the campaign, the SATC team came out with a part two and part three. And it was successful to the extent that uh, the Tasmanian uh, tourism team tried to recreate that arguably to a, a far less successful extent. But uh, he's been a real risk taker. Uh, he's definitely managed to make South Australia a talking point in his time there. And it's been a really difficult job for him, not least the global pandemic, the bushfires, the the uh, feedback he's received from some quarters uh, as well. Uh, but he has done a, a, a very good job to the extent where there were rumours uh, at the time of Lisa Ronson moving on that he may be in the the frame for the the top marketing gig at Tourism Australia. Of course, that never quite happened, but uh, there was definitely talk in market that he would go there. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see where he goes now. It's a big loss for SATC, uh, 
but Eric Deruz stepping up, who has a, a large amount of experience in agency and brand as well from San Remo. Uh, he's come from, but also big experience at Cleminger uh, as well as Cummins and Partners. And most importantly, uh, an Adelaide boy as well. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where he takes that definitely big shoes to fill. Yes, it will also be interesting to see how Brent goes and the Pacific and who and what he ends up doing there. Old mate's going to travel to the Pacific soon, I feel. (laughs) Coming up next, Damien will be talking to 55.5 director Estelle Gohill. Mumbrella's Finance Marketing Summit is back this October, gathering the most influential thinkers in finance marketing to discuss the current environment. Key issues of trust and connection are on the agenda, with COVID being the springboard of change in establishing goodwill with consumers. Versa, Westpac Group, DDB Sydney and Alpha Lab have already been confirmed on the lineup. Book your tickets before August 27 to save $200. For more information, go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash finance. Estelle Gohill, director at 55.5. Thank you so much for joining me on the Mumbrella cast. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the the biggest question of the lot here. What is 55.5 and and what do you do? (laughs) That's a really easy one. Excellent. (laughs) We start off here, it gets a lot harder at the end. Um, we're Australia's, I always sounds like an infomercial when I say this, but we are Australia's largest We'll put backing music on to it. So. <laughs> we're Australia's largest uh, independent research agency. We actually are not just Australia. We've got a couple offices in Sydney, Melbourne. We're also New Zealand, Singapore, down in Canberra as well these days. Um, so, uh, yeah, research. We're a research consultancy, we like to say, because we do a lot more than just sort of primary research. We do a lot of the kind of wraparound stuff as well. And, of course, research is becoming a, a, has been a key talking point within the media marketing industry for, for quite some time, particularly now. And, and the reason uh, largely why we've got you on the Mumbrella cast is to talk about a research project that 55.5 is doing at the moment called Australia Pulse. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it's taking a deep dive into consumer behaviours since the global pandemic uh, and it's based on 1,000 nationally representative interviews per month. Um, what's the driver behind doing this? Why the interest in it and uh, why do it? Very good question. Um, I will go back to the very beginning because it's always a very good place to start. Um, at the outset of COVID, uh, at 55.5, we were really lucky in that we had some kind of crisis-honed leaders who had been through the GFC. And so instead of kind of going, oh dear, what do we do? There was a very immediate sense of, the most important thing in this time of great disruption for our clients is going to be able to give them a set of headlights through the dark. So back then, before Australia Pulse, um, they launched the um, CCIM, as we call it, um, COVID Consumer Impact Monitor. Now that was not a public piece of work, it was a syndicated study. And so we worked with clients to kind of go really deep. Um, And I think that's kind of what differentiates it from a lot of the other, I think a lot of people went, oh, people are gonna wanna know about behavior change. But a lot of that was at a cultural level, whereas with the CCIM, we worked with clients in 27 categories and went really deep all the way through to what does that mean for you at the shelf? What does that mean for you when your customers are making decisions right now and tracked it every day? 
Uh, and that, so for nine months, we were generating this tremendous trove of very broad and very deep data. So we got to beginning of this year and kind of looked at that and said, all right, well, obviously as a syndicated study, we can't share a lot of the details of that, but what we do have is some really crystal clear themes about how culture and consumers have changed. And that seemed pretty interesting. So we took those sort of eight themes and went, all right, well, I think the one thing we all know is that the dust is not settled yet, right? Every time there's an outbreak in Melbourne or Sydney or you know anywhere, we kind of all go, nobody really knows what you know, I hate the term the new normal, but <laughs> nobody really knows what life looks like post-COVID yet. So we wanted to continue tracking some of those big cultural themes. And that's where Australia Pulse has come from. And I'm assuming those big cultural themes kind of are rapidly evolving as well in terms of as the pandemic sort of got longer and longer. And like you said, more lockdowns in, in different areas, the uh, I guess, opinion that people had of their environment, their, their situation sort of began to evolve and, and, and shift with that as well. Have you seen some significant changes in how consumers are, are behaving and reacting during this, this ongoing period? Yes, probably not as as many bends in the data mm. as at the beginning because, of course, there was a lot of, oh, it's terrible. No, it's not. Yes, it, no. oh, my gosh. It's going to end. It's not going to end. <laughs> what do we do? Yeah, and some. I think the other thing is some of those became quite predictable. So when mm. you look at things like outbreak numbers, then there are, you know, there are certain consumer sentiments that are tied to what those numbers look like. Um, whereas I think what we started to get really interested in were what are the things that are kind of having a seismic effect on culture and we don't know where those will land. We don't really know yet, you know, to what extent we will go back to our, for example, conspicuous consumption that was all fantastic before all of this happened but now feels a little distasteful. Mm. Um, so that's the, they're the kind of themes that we're really keen to track are those cultural shifts. Yeah, so you mentioned those themes and, and, and con conspicuous consumption being one of them. But can you tell me a bit more about the other themes that you've picked up from, from, the, from the research? So we've got five kind of key themes that feel like they're probably most broadly relevant. There's others, things like, um, gosh, uh, petite pleasures that are extremely relevant if you're in certain categories, but maybe not in others. But the five that we feel like have got probably the most relevance to more brands and businesses. One of them is local living. Um, another is continuous commerce. Collective health is wealth. New values, old money, and CSR drive are the kind of five big headlines, I suppose. Um, which are you most interested in hearing about? Uh, look, uh, all of them, really. <laughs> we don't have time for all of them, but let me let me uh, ask you a few questions on, on local because that was the, the first one mentioned in The Pulse. Uh, and I was quite interested in, in that in terms of uh, the pandemic encouraging a bigger focus uh, on local, uh, but also it was noting that uh, there was still a bit of a disconnect between people and feeling connected to, to their community as well. Uh, so now that we've got a bit more research on local and consumers within that their sort of local area. What are the bigger takeouts around that? Uh, look, this one's really interesting because I think local has been bandied about a lot in marketing circles mm. and we're seeing a lot of I'm buying local, I'm supporting local, I've got local ingredients in my product and people feeling good about that. But it feels to us like the big opportunity is exactly what you picked up on. I think it's uh, four in ten, is it? Mm. Um, only four in ten feel connected to their community. 
that means there's a whole heap of people who feel like local is wildly important but at the same time they don't feel like they're hooked into it and this ties in really nicely with one of our other things which is connected health is wealth which starts to talk about health is really only health if it's the whole community and so the two kind of dovetail quite nicely together because it sort of suggests that Connecting people into their communities is what's mm. going to build a healthier community, both for individuals, families, mental health, all of that stuff. So it feels like there's this amazing opportunity for brands that mm. they're not necessarily stepping into that much in order to connect people with their local community. I think we've seen some really nice sprinklings of it. I think Telstra is doing something really nice at the minute with supporting small businesses. But specific to local, you know, what's your favourite local shop, that kind of thing, I'm sure there's better iterations of it, but it feels like that's the really rich opportunity that's not being addressed at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think uh, marketers can really address something like local when there are so many different communities? You look at Sydney, where we are at the moment, there are so many different communities, so many different, uh, I guess, demographics within those communities. Uh, we're kind of a, a city of multiple areas that are very, very different, no matter where you go. Is that a hard thing for brands to keep track of and, and really, I guess, get into the local culture? Of course, it's a challenge, but I think that's where it comes down to, you know, pick your cause, right? And, mm. and it's funny because that starts to butt up against another one of these themes, which is that CSR drive. And I think that to me is really fascinating, watching the extent to which people now expect brands and businesses to step up when it comes to CSR. And that's such an interesting space, right? Because I, I'm sure we've, you know, many of us have worked over the years in CSR marketing. And sort of when you work on those projects, there's this sort of really difficult fine line to walk between telling people the good work we do and chest beating. Mm. But now there's kind of an expectation that brands are doing that. It's like, yeah, sure, you've got this brand purpose over here, but what value are you actually adding for the community? So I think it's become necessary for people to solve that challenge. Yeah, and talking about CSR, because I found that section really interesting, uh, and one of the stats was that uh, I believe 14% of consumers looked into the ethics and behaviours of brands, um, or they looked uh, for or bought sustainably sourced products. Mm -hmm. 14%, is that enough to really get brands to drive the CSR within the business, or are they still looking at that and going, oh, 14%? It's not going to make enough difference for me at the moment. It's become something that I think you can't ignore. I mean, mm. it's not just about what you're buying. It's also about the brands that you're choosing based on their values. So it may not be buying a product, but it may be feeling an affinity to a brand. So I think it kind of, it plays out across all of the different touch points that a brand has, not just does it drive my product choice, but to what extent I feel connected with that brand because it mirrors my values has become extremely important as we we know from you know, this and many other pieces of research. Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to getting that out into the community as well. Uh, have you seen brands really attempting to do that more during COVID or has it kind of stayed level where, where it was before in terms of there's clearly an interest in it, but maybe not as much execution? I think you do see, I mean, ob the obvious examples are some of the things like the, you know, drinks companies who have stepped up and made uh, 
hand sanitizer and things like that. But it definitely feels like there's a sense that brands have needed to speak to the fact that we've got some seismic issues, you know, right the way back from bushfires, really. I think this is not just COVID. Right the way back from bushfires, through COVID, and now the kind of impact of COVID that we're seeing across all sorts of cultural change. You know, we're seeing... You know, the rise of things like mental health, you know, you can't see something like Oprah Winfrey talking about the me, you can't see and not think, oh my gosh, this is a major cultural shift. And I think brands are answering those needs in in small and large ways, starting to do things like step into mental health, step into wellness and things like that. Let's talk about social responsibility and lock the corporate part off it, because uh, in the study as well, I was uh, intrigued to see... Uh, a mention of the fact that consumers were focusing or starting to focus more on us uh, rather than me or, or my. Uh, and the particular context around that was um, health and, and well-being. Uh, and I found that fascinating when you consider at the very beginning of the pandemic, here we all were uh, grabbing toilet paper off the shelves in the <laughs> local supermarket. Screw whoever else was out there. I'll take a, a couple of shopping trolleys worth of it. And it was very much a me and my not a not an us what what changed what's driven that sort of shift i think that's a really good question and i mean look to not sound too wanky i used to have a uh, fantastic university professor who used to say plato once said what is the good life right and i think over the last 12 months you know people have had the time and the space and the disruption in their life everything's changed on an everyday basis and people have really stepped back and gone, all right, for me personally, what is the good life? You've got dads who are driving the kids to school and going, oh, actually, this is enriching my experience with my family. And you've got people, you know, who are suddenly realising that I'm washing my hands not just for me, but I'm actually doing it to protect the people around me or maybe I get a vaccine for the people around me. So I think there's been a real step back and a real, you know, and this sort of shines through not just this health one, there's also one about sort of values around money changing. The sense of what we value and our personal sense of what is the good life has been really challenged. It's it's a fascinating cultural moment. Yeah, let me pick you up on that one as well, just randomly while we're talking about it, because that to me was fascinating as well, the fact that we're a bit more careful with our money now, but also there was, I think it was 44% of people were suggesting that times are actually quite good now. They're, you know, they're not worried uh, about money. So there's, there's more of a conservative approach to spend, mm. but not the worry of I'm not going to, well, for that 44% anyway, I'm not going to earn less than, yeah. than I was. Uh, how has that come together? Because that seems to be a, a, a bit of a polar opposite. It is a polar opposite. So that's where you're looking at really a tale of two citizens. You're looking at the folks who are still really struggling and having difficulties. And there's a lot of examples of that coming through. You know, people, 7% who can't pay a utility bill, 6% without a meal, 4% seeking assistance from welfare or community organisations. Like those are really sobering statistics for Australia in 2021. Um, but then by the same token, you know, as we know, there are some categories that are thriving and that have actually done well out of this. So there's just a huge split. Yes, consumer confidence is high, but there are big groups of people within Australian society who are still really struggling. But I think the overall here is that sense of 
you know, everybody stepped back and everybody said, what do I value? Um, and that I think the overarching kind of, uh, and I think the theme we're talking to here is what we're calling new values, old money, is that it's not, it's, it's not tasteful to be conspicuously consuming anymore. Bling is kind of a bit distasteful to people. And I don't know if you're old enough, but I remember post-GFC things like Mark Jacobs coming out with a recession lock and people saying it's no longer cool to be 80s bling. And it's there are real kind of parallels. It's quite interesting seeing this happen again where you've got the Kardashians on social media saying, you know, I'm on an island and everyone's like, yeah, look, there are people struggling right now. That is not okay. So just that real challenge of... of what does it mean to badge success? It all comes back to that sort of sense of, you know, we've re-challenged our basic understanding of what is the good life and what matters to me. I appreciate that you uh, suggest that I may not uh, be old enough to remember the GFC, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately I am. <laughs> um, but that that brings uh, an interesting question uh, around brands connecting with the consumer, and they've got to do it differently now and one of the talking points uh, again in the research uh, was using new platforms for connection and and that shift to e-commerce as well and I think what we saw very quickly from a lot of brands was if people aren't out and about we've got to completely change the way that we communicate with them and the way that we sell them products and and e-commerce became massive and we saw uh, some uh, direct-to-consumer DTC brands doing very well uh, also. Do you think that trend is going to continue as we sort of start to flood back out into the streets now and life is slowly returning back to normal? There are crowds and grandstands now and people in shops and trains and all of that sort of stuff. These quick shifts that brands made, will they remain? Well, do you think everyone will unlearn how to use Zoom? I didn't really learn how to use Zoom properly in the first place. I'm still struggling. (laughs) Oh, maybe that's a bad example. I mean, if I think about the way we do research today, you know, not having to get on a plane to talk to people in other countries, which I did this morning, talking to a medical device recipient in Florida, like those frontiers opening up for us are not going to change. And I think in the same way with commerce, it's going to be easier. There are certain things that before we went, oh, I wouldn't buy pants on the internet. And now we kind of go, oh, it's not that hard. So I think there will be things that stay. But I think the interesting thing in the commerce piece is the extent to which it's it's transformed certain businesses. So I've been doing some, some work with um, talking to some leading marketers, sort of CMO type positions for a piece of work. And it's fascinating to see, like, if you're in financial services, this has reinvented the wheel. (laughs) Whereas if you're in FMCG, yeah, sure, it's changed a lot of things and there are extra considerations. You might be having the thought that you were just talking about, which is to what extent are people going to go back to buying the way they bought? But if you're uh, in financial services, this has completely transformed your industry in the last year. So it does differ a little bit by sector as well, I think. So one thing I wanted to clarify with you as well from the research was I read a line in there that said that consumers have moved from a performance culture to an anti-strive culture. I have no idea what that means. Can you shed some light on that (laughs) sentence for me? 
Oh, look, it's a bit, again, it's a bit of a tricky one because we do have some people working harder than they've ever worked. Um, and I know we've, we've all had meetings with people where we're going from back to back to back Zoom calls and we're all going, oh, my gosh, throwing our hands in the air. Um, but I think it really comes back to that thing before about what is the good life, right? Uh, I think people have kind of realised that constant striving is not necessarily a recipe for happiness and they're kind of really reassessing their values and so that always on culture is starting to fragment a little bit now you're doing a lot of research around this this is going to be a regular mm-hmm. piece for, for 55.5 it's all well and good to put the research out are brands paying attention to, to what you're serving up I hope so. I mean, I think the, there are opportunities in here. I think one of the things that's really clear is as people's needs shift and as people's behaviour shift and as they start to get a renewed sense of what's important to them, inevitably opportunities arise. And so if you're not paying attention, you miss it, right? And it's still a bit of a risk though, right, because like we were sort of talking about before, the the patterns of behaviour have changed substantially since the beginning of Mm. the pandemic. Uh, Look at the office situations. Probably a bad example sitting here now with you, being that me and you are one of the only people in the Mumbrella offices at the moment. But we've been covering a trend of brands and agencies returning to a more normal situation, or I should say pre-pandemic normal situation. Now, they might not be five days a week again, but they're three days a week or they're four days a week. And perhaps in the early stages of the pandemic, the industry was going, wow, maybe we don't need office space anymore. Maybe everyone's going to work from home. We can live in Byron Bay or Kiama or something and it's all going to be fine. Um, do you think there's a, a, a reticence from brands to make significant shifts uh, according to, to the research that's coming through, not just from you, but from various other places as well, their own research uh, as well, because they believe that maybe it might go back closer to normal. Maybe we might see this uh, golden pre-pandemic norm return that we once spoke about. Oh, it's a really interesting question. And I think it comes down to... You know, the dust hasn't settled, right? I don't think anyone really knows where what normal will look like. And the, the example, I mean, to be honest, that's the question that we probably get asked the most often as well. What's going to happen around, you know, people going back to the office? And you can look at one industry like marketing and you can go, all right, there's pressure to go back into the office. And you look, can look at other industries where they've let flaws and flaws of their business go and, and there's no pressure. And it's going to take time before we understand if that's going to push great talent from one industry to the other and so it's not you know that's why we're sort of looking at a macro level across Australia and we're comparing different categories and industries and businesses because those kind of big shifts and where it all settles is really unknowable at this point. And one other thing that I took out of this when I got sent the Australia Pulse and I opened it up and it was seven pages I thought brilliant seven pages this is going to be relatively simple to to go through and and take a look at but what i found very quickly was the the detail is still actually quite thick in the sense that it covers a quite a broad array of areas even though as you've mentioned there's five sort of major topics there but they're all quite broad Mm. uh, and they all have a fairly significant uh, I guess idea behind each one of them 
do you think there's still confusion in market from marketers trying to get their head around where do they need to be? What are those five are, are important for them? Where should they actually, you know, I guess invest their time and their team's time in? Uh, because for me, reading that, I was just thinking I, I wouldn't know quite where to start. Mm. I mean, that's where that tension between the headline uh, of cultural change, like a headline of cultural change, and then the actual detail starts to come in, which, you know, I guess people pick out what's relevant to them. Um, and it's probably easier if you're sitting anchored in a specific business and you're anchored in a specific sector. Um, but yeah, there's so much detail and that's where we're starting to pick apart things like, yes, consumer confidence is high, but within that we've got groups, sectors, we've got people who are really struggling. So it's needing to go down to that next level, which, I mean, I think people have an appetite for for uh, detail. I hope so. <laughs> Everyone, every marketer wants more information, wants more to back up their decisions. Are you finding that there's more people knocking on your door saying, what, what can you provide us? What can you give us? Um, has there been more interest since the, the pandemic began? Um, well, we've always been busy, but I've got to say we are very busy at the minute. Um, I think there is a real appetite to understand. Uh, that's a really good way to actually anchor it, to understand. Mm. You know, there's been an appetite to, to track. There's been an appetite to follow what was happening. But I think there is that moment where the, the world has paused and people are going, okay, well, to what extent, what do I track and follow? <laughs> to what extent are people going to be the same? To what extent are they going to be different? And most importantly, how does that affect my brand and my business? And sometimes to get down to that level of detail, the only way to do it is to go and do some work, you know, do some primary work. Moving forward, obviously you're going to do more of these and perceptions and behaviours will change. Have you seen any patterns in behaviours that would indicate where we're going? Is there an, an ability to kind of guesstimate where we may or where consumer behaviour may end up towards the end of 2021? Well, that's why we've chosen these five themes. These are the ones that feel like they have changed. Um, to what extent they swing back like the way that we kind of think about a lot of this stuff is the you know there's the speed of the trajectory and then there's how long it takes right so a lot of this stuff has got to do with how long it takes before everyone's vaccinated and how long it takes you know there are economic effects that rely on a swift opening up of the borders and things like that so it's difficult to say where the trajectory ends because we don't know how long we're in this for. But I think what we've got here, if you you know, is some a really good understanding of what those bends look like to now, from you know, the beginning of COVID happening to now. And so we'll continue to track that. But when we stop and when we go, all right, we're done. <laughs> we're done now, it's really anyone's guess, right? Absolutely, and I hope we are done very, very soon. I think we all do. <laughs> Uh, Estelle Gohill, Director at 55.5. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mumbrella Cast. Pleasure. And that's it for this week. But before we go... From July 13 to 15, Mumbrella 360 Reimagined is taking over Sydney across three venues to deliver the knowledge and networking opportunities you need after a year largely at home. 
From top marketers to some of Australia's most recognisable media personalities, this jam-packed event is not to be missed. You'll hear from radio personalities such as Carl Sanderlands, Christian O'Connell and Ash London, as well as recognisable faces such as Dr Norman Swan, Aussie cricket star Holly Furling and former rugby player Matt Rogers. Go to mumbrella.com.au, Mumbrella360 and grab your tickets today. Now, if you're looking for a bit more of a Mumbrella cast fix, do make sure to listen to Tim Burrow's interview with Gold FM's Christian O'Connell, which dropped on Tuesday. In the meantime, that's it for today's episode. Xander, Liv, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Damien. Thanks, Damo. Thank you.